This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending another 30 minutes of your precious time as we discuss the issues at the forefront of American politics. Today, we will talk about the politics of the House Ethics Committee with former Republican Congressman Charlie Den, who served as chairman of the committee for several years. How are you doing, Congressman? Doing great, Jerry. Great to see you again under different circumstances. Yes, well, that's right. So before you and I connected, well, once we connected, we realized we've trampled over some of the same ground. You're a Penn Stater like I am a year before me. And then uh, you also represented Allentown, the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, where I worked with the morning call for four years. So, um, you know, Allentown gets kind of the bad rap because of the Billy Joel song. But there were some really nice people up there. Those people oh. in the valley, it's a beautiful area and uh, just uh, just some really good people up there. Oh, yeah, it's a fantastic place and uh, and uh, proud to call it home. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I guess I was up there a couple of years ago and there's just been a lot of investment there. I think there was a state state uh, legislation that poured like a billion dollars. in. Yeah, that's uh, the neighborhood improvement zone law. And uh, yeah, there's been a. Yeah, probably close to a billion dollars worth of investment in the city since then. Big step. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get to it. You uh, served on the House Ethics Committee. And I wondered if you could just give our listeners a, a little bit of a uh, understanding of what the House Ethics Committee does. Yeah, sure. The House Ethics Committee's function, Jerry, was was largely to, you know, uh, try to enforce and maintain standards of conducts, standards of conduct for members of staff and members of Congress. Uh, and so that was our job. So when rules were violated, you know, we, you know, we, we obviously had to enforce them, but just as important, we tried to help, uh, the members and staff understand the rules better and really trying to help them comply and wanted to, you know, have an open relationship where they could call us, seek our guidance you know, in the event they were, you know, you know, going to be taking on or doing things that they, they weren't sure were permissible. So that's kind of what we did. So we're the arm to, to uh, you know, to try to, to maintain and enforce uh, standards of conduct for the House. When I look at it now, I think it, it's probably a little more focused on the financial, any financial violations and the financial doings. As I looked through some of the more recent ones, like Charlie Rangel and, and people like that, it was mostly financial disclosures, campaign contribution. Is it that is it narrowed to that now? Well, no, it's 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 actually have a pretty broad mandate. Um there have certainly been cases where there has been financial you know, impropriety or failure to disclose, uh, you know, finances. Like in the Wrangell case, he failed to disclose, in- disclose income for several years, and that's really what tripped him up more than anything else. Uh, there are, you know, uh, members or staff who impermissibly use or utilize their office resources uh, for non-official purposes. That is, you know, for campaign or personal purposes. That, of course, is a big violation of house rules that's often uh, a matter where people can get tripped up uh speaking of trips um you know we do allow trips of um, for members to go on trips paid for privately but there are very strict rules regarding those trips for example the trip sponsors cannot be employing lobbyists and that sort of thing um, i'm at the aspen institute and i run the congressional program we run international and domestic conferences too where we travel and you know no one's permitted to lobby uh and uh you know, we're a little different. We're only foundation 
funded. So we're, I think, in a little bit of a, a safer place than some of the others. But you know, with, particularly with corporate entities or individual contributions, you have to watch to make sure those folks are not uh, employing uh, uh, lobbyists. Uh, so. Uh, bottom line is um, we've had some issues with trips. We've had some issues with, uh, you know, financial disclosures, failure to report income, uh, impermissible use of office, and other types of scandalous events. Uh, you know, right now I'm I'm, sh- I'm certain that that uh, I, I bet I, the, the ethics committee won't announce it unless they unless they initiate what's called an investigative subcommittee. But I suspect they're investigating some of the high profile matters right now, like the. Uh, some members involvement with the so-called insurrection or some member, maybe a guy like Matt Gates, uh, who, you know, was under, appears to be under some pretty serious uh, investigation by law enforcement authorities in, in Florida and perhaps the U.S. government. You also mentioned the January 6th situation. So what was it like when you, you know, learned about that? You watched that on TV. You spent a lot of time in that building. Well, yeah, I was just, you know, horrified. I was really saddened and, uh, you know, shocked to witness the events that the that the peaceful transfer of power was being interrupted or disrupted by, you know, uh, people who were violent and trying to stop the transfer of power. I mean, it really was, uh, it was a rebellion. It was, a, it was a rebellion. It was an insurrection. Uh, it was very, uh, it, was, uh, it was just very stunning to those of us watching it. And I, I've participated in those problems, uh, those, uh, that process of the certification of votes. Uh, where electoral votes. And I've done that. And I remember my first, one of my first days in Congress was in 2005 when we were certifying the reelection of George Bush and Dick Cheney. And I thought it was so bizarre that a few Democrats were going to contest the, <laughs> the vote in Ohio. And I thought, is this like, is this serious? I mean, you know, I guess they're going to do this and they'll make a little noise and I'm going to vote and, you know, vote to certify the election, you know, that Bush won. Uh, and, uh, and uh, but these guys just didn't want to accept the outcome. And I remember, but you know, it's okay. But this one was a uh, was a little different in that the uh, the defeated candidate in this case, uh, Donald Trump, you know, didn't acknowledge that fact. Uh, you know, at that time, John Kerry, who was defeated in 04, you know, he acknowledged, he conceded. Um, you know, Donald Trump did not. And rather than having a handful of uh, disgruntled members in 2005 who were, you know, trying to you know make a make a scene. You know, there we had, uh, you know, a very significant number, I think 140 or 146 or seven between the House and the Senate. So it was a, a pretty darn big number. That was what was different. Uh, and uh, but it was, uh, it was very upsetting and, and, and stunning to watch, uh, you know, such a spectacle and that uh, uh, that that thankfully failed. But nevertheless, uh, you know, has shaken the foundation of our more institutions. Yeah, I watched a really uh, great movie over the weekend called Recount, which was about the 2000 election. And we don't need to get into that, but I just wanted to mention that movie. I thought it was fascinating. Um, so you're seeing all this uh, talk about a January 6th commission. Republicans uh, want it to be different. Um, there was a Senate report out this week that said uh, basically the FBI never told the Capitol Police about the dangers surrounding this and what they knew. What's your thoughts on the commission? Well, I, I thought Congress should have enacted an independent bipartisan uh, commission to investigate uh, the events of January 6th, that, which led up to it and the day of the event, including the actions of the president. Uh, they, I, I think it's a, it's a mistake that one was not established. Um, sad part is we're still going to have an investigation of January 6th, but I suspect it will be done by a select committee that will be partisan. And uh, and. And they'll still raise all the issues, but uh, it'll be seen through more of a partisan lens rather than this uh, January 6th commission, was going, which was going to be much more structured like the, uh, 
9-11 commission that was seen as you know, kind of a little bit removed from the politics. I mean, you never can take the politics out of these things, but it was a little bit more removed. And I think it was, I think at that time, was it Lee Hamilton and Tom Kane? Uh, That's right. Uh, were the two you right. know, co-chairs. They were former mm-hmm. prominent elected officials, respected, uh, well-respected on both sides. Right. And you know, they conducted a fair you know, ev- evaluation. In fact, we used that 9-11 commission report. I was on the, I was on the Homeland Security Committee. And we used that report and its findings and recommendations, and we implemented a large number of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a valuable tool for members of Congress to, you know, to take action that would, you know, help us prevent another attack like like the one we witnessed in September 11th. So you were a Republican, and I would consider you a moderate Republican. Um, what did you think about the Republicans, like Kevin McCarthy, saying, "No, no, no, we're not going to do this"? There seems to be, and we've talked about it here. There seems to be Republicanism and Trumpism, but it, they, you know, they they kind of mix a little bit. Yeah, I think what what happened there is that the, initially, I think most everybody was in favor of a of a commission. In fact, uh, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy empowered his ranking member on the Homeland Security Committee, uh, House Homeland Security Committee, John Katko, a uh, Republican of Syracuse, New York, uh, to lead that negotiation. And McCarthy entered into a good faith negotiation with the Democrat, Benny Thompson, chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. And they reached an agreement. And, and, and I would argue that Katko got a lot of the things that McCarthy wanted, like he wanted, you know, equal representation on the commission and mm-hmm. Uh, and and there are a variety of things that uh, that they wanted, and, and and so Kako really structured this or got the concessions that he wanted that made this January sixth commission look pretty much like the nine eleven commission. And then the McCarthy then you know basically bailed on him. Uh, I, I believe largely because you know McCarthy and, and others, some House Republicans, you know, had some exposure because you know they were not only they were. They were witnesses. Yes, they were. They were subject to the attack, but they were also witnesses. And you know, Kevin McCarthy had a famous phone call with Donald Trump that got rather heated. And I suspect that they were concerned about him being called as a witness or subpoenaed because of conversations he may have with the president on the day of the insurrection and perhaps in the days succeeding uh, that. And there were other members of Congress, you know, who uh, you know who may have been too close to some of the insurrectionists. You heard about tours being conducted for some of them. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. ordinarily tours of the Capitol is not really a big deal, mm-hmm. but at that time the Capitol was a restricted area. Mm-hmm. There were no visitors. <laughs> I mean, there were not. They were not permitted. So uh, that's so. There are those types of questions, and some members, you know, say like a Mo Brooks and others who make rather loud incendiary comments, um, you know, leading up to it uh, <clears throat> that day. You know, I, I suspect were were maybe somewhat exposed, and so I thought maybe they were trying to protect some of the members. We didn't want to have to answer uncomfortable questions. As a, a, a politician, as someone who's going through the elective process, there, I, I think there's a lot of people <laughs> who kind of are basing their future on what they do and whether they're going to agitate the Trump supporters. Um, we had the impeachment trial in the Senate, and I think if that was an anonymous vote, I don't think that would have been a question. But um, how how difficult is it to kind of walk that line? I mean, like you got a Mitch McConnell who generally probably wouldn't support Trump, but he knows that his electorate down there, his his base in Kentucky needs him to do that. Yeah, I think this has been a real challenge for many Republican members of, of Congress throughout the Trump presidency, which is, you know, how do they 
you know, many of them, you know, privately, many of them know that the things that Donald Trump said were outrageous and offensive. And, 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 and I think many of them made the, the, the decision, the calculated decision just to try to ignore that and ignore his, his rantings and, uh, uh, and, uh, and just try to keep their heads down and do their job. Uh, and, and, you know, and the challenge with that, of course, is that many people in the base and the Republican base for hearing Trump's messages. And I've always said, absent another voice, uh, you know, this narrative that Trump was pushing, you know, really sunk in with much of the base. And that was always the challenge. I always thought that silence was never a good answer, but I felt that more of them needed to speak up loudly and in larger numbers. Uh, to, you know, I think if the base heard an alternative point of view, you know, the, the, you know, the 70% of the base supporting Trump and, you know, not believing that, for example, on the uh, election being stolen, uh, which it wasn't, but 70% believing that if they heard more from other prominent elected Republican officials, you know, calling, you know, calling BS when they see it, um, you know, I suspect that number would be considerably lower, but that hasn't happened because I think many members were fearful um, that, you know, they, that they would be challenged uh, successfully in primaries. Uh, by not just by the president, but by his his supporters. We were talking a little bit about the House Ethics Committee, and we have this situation where Republican Marjorie Green from Georgia, uh, she had her committee assignments taken away from her because her speech was considered violent, calling for violence and being incendiary. Um, were you surprised at that, at that? Like, who gets to take committee assignments away? I mean, to her district center there, is, is there a question of, well, she, you know, who gets to decide that? Is it, and would it go before the Ethics Committee? Would her... Um, the way she's operating, the things that she's doing. I know she recently chased down Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and, and kind of, um, you know, confronted her and, and kind of kind of scared her because she was saying some pretty, pretty, um, you know, forceful things to her. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, let's start with the committee assignments. I'm going to talk about, you know, whether or not there have been complaints filed about her, the ethics committee. Um you know, her committee assignments, when she was first nominated, Taylor Green was first nominated back in, in Georgia, I think it was just about nearly a year ago uh, when she was nominated for that seat in a very conservative area of uh, northwestern Georgia. You know, she, she won that primary. And, you know, with everybody understanding she was a, a QAnon supporter, you know, uh, there were some Holocaust denial in there. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of bigotry in there, too. Uh, you know, anti-Muslim, anti-Semitic, anti, anti a lot of things. Uh, and 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 I thought that, you know, it would have been smart at that moment for the House Republican Conference leadership at the time, Kevin McCarthy, to say, look, uh, you know, congratulations on your primary, Marjorie. Um, you will likely be elected member of Congress, but you will not be welcomed into the House Republican Conference. We will not give you a seat in our conference and we will not assign you to any committees. And, uh, you know, we're going to work with the Georgia GOP in 2022 to defeat you in the primary. You know, enjoy your time in Congress. I mean, I thought that's how they should have dealt with her then. Yeah, and then of course, more recently, you know, she had her committee assignment stripped of her by the whole house, not just, I, if I, again, I, I thought that Kevin McCarthy's play should have been the same one he made against Steve King of Iowa, who had, you know, had a track record of making some very inflammatory and incendiary comments about, about African-Americans and, and other, other things. He, and, and McCarthy essentially booted him off his committee. They got behind uh, a primary opponent and they defeated Steve King. 
So the point is, the, the way you deal with these kinds of fringe characters is to marginalize them, you know, not to not simply to ignore them or to stand beside them, but to but to marginalize them. And I think that is what did not happen with Taylor Greene. Um, and then, of course, Democrats threw her off the committee. She's made more comments in recent days and weeks uh, that, again, have proven to be very incendiary. And um, uh, and she, you know, and so I think the Republicans are in a, in a, in a real spot with her because it, by not taking her off the committees, the committees themselves, Republicans and the Democrats forced to vote. And it was a small number of Republicans who voted to remove her from the committees. But now there's a record, you know, a, a vote that many Republicans, are, you know, defended her ability to stay on committees. And that vote will, can and will be used against many of them, just like the insurrection will be used against many voting against the commission. Uh, so I think this is a mistake. Uh, not to have dealt with her forcefully. Now, the Ethics Committee may have received complaints about her. Uh, you, you mentioned the Ocasio-Cortez situation, you know, where she kind of got into her face and you know, it might be seen as harassment, what she's been doing to her. There's, there's a rule in the House. It's, it's, it's any action that a member takes that would bring discredit upon the House, you can be sanctioned for that. Now, that said, there's usually another underlying offense uh, that, that bringing discredit upon the House is one of the several issues that they will slap you with. Uh, usually it's not the only one. Uh, but in this case, um, you know, I, I suspect there will be complaints filed. Um, and 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 I don't I don't I couldn't tell you the status of that because I do things. These are personnel matters. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and so I, I would suspect, though, that she probably does have an ethics investigation. And what could the ethics committee do? The ethics committee does not deal with issues of criminality. That is, in other words, they're not there to determine whether or not a crime was committed. Their job is to determine whether or not a member has complied with House rules. So these are rules issues. So and the Ethics Committee really only has four sanctions that, that it can impose on members of Congress. The most severe sanction, of course, is one uh, expulsion. Uh, I believe there have been a history of uh, in, in, in the history of the House, there have been about five expulsions, all of which occurred, uh, all but two of which I believe occurred during the Civil War. Uh, for, for treason. They were, so we had traitors. The Senate also had expulsions. I believe all the expulsions in the Senate were for treason during the Civil War. There were two other cases in the U.S. House. Members were expelled, but they were for acts of criminality. You may remember being a good Pennsylvania jury uh, that uh, uh, that Ozzie Myers of Abscan. Oh, uh, my gosh. You may remember him. <laughs> he, he was he was uh, convicted and then he was expelled. And he, he was, uh, you, you may remember, there was a very famous the quote FBI sting video no. uh, with the, the, the Arab, the, the FBI guys dressed as Arab sheiks wearing tennis sneakers mm -hmm. and, and catching the, and asking where they get the buddy, uh, buddy, uh, uh, Ozzy Myers on the video saying, hey, money talks, bullshit walks. You know, right. and, uh, that was the famous quote. He, he popularized the term. Well, he got, he, he was a. Uh, Expelled. You know, usually, a, a convicted member of Congress has enough sense to resign before being expelled, but uh, Ozzie did not. And then came, uh, of course, James, James Trafficant of Ohio. You remember him, the guy with the hair? I was going to bring up James Trafficant. I had to well, talk he, about him. He was the other one. He was expelled. Uh, you know, he had been convicted for serious, I forgot what it was, extortion or bribery or whatever he did, uh, but bad things. And so, but he also, uh, you know, refused to resign and was expelled. So, uh, those are. So it's very unusual. So expulsion, censure is the next sanction. 
So that's where you're called to the well of the house and the, the charges are read against you and you have to stand there. Charlie and take it. Well, that was what happened. Was Charlie. He was censured and there are others who were censured. Yeah. The next one is a reprimand, which is very similar to a, uh, it's a, it's a sanction very similar to a censure other than the member does not have to be on the house, doesn't have to be present on the house floor mm -hmm. while the charges are being read against them, but a vote of the house would occur. And the fourth th sanction, and the least serious, is what we call a letter of reproval, where you're sent a letter told that you did these things that were you know, inappropriate, violated rules, and that you're being reproved. Um, it's not a vote of the house, but it's just a simple letter. There's a fifth unofficial sanction, if you will, called admonishment. Mm -hmm. uh, that had been used against, I think that was used against, was that against Tom DeLay or Newt Gingrich? And then also uh, Charlie Rangel was admonished too uh, at one point. Uh, and so separate from his censure. So that's what ha happened. So those are, those are the sanctions. Now, here's the other little bit of news here, uh, Jerry. You, you know, the, the Ethics Committee only has jurisdictions of members of Congress and staff who are currently employed by the House of Representatives. So if one were to resign, well, the ethics investigation goes away. The committee no longer has jurisdiction, only of those who are currently serving. So that's why oftentimes, you know, you don't see people say, why don't you expel all these guys? Well, quite often people resign yeah. before it gets to that point. Yeah. And, and so you, you get rid of a problem that way. And I would always like to point out too, that you know, I could probably think of about 13 or 14 members of the House who were forced to resign uh, because of issues that not, weren't necessarily criminal, but they became embarrassments or distractions mm -hmm. to the House. And I'll start, remember Mark Foley? Mark Foley, okay, he resigned, you know, again, as far as I know, he didn't commit any crimes. Right. You know, even after all these years, he was never charged. I and mean, he sent inappropriate messages, I get. That's exactly. I think there were text messages to yep. House pages. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he didn't cross the line. I, then he, he kept in contact with them when they were over 18. Then he may have sent some inappropriate things even more inappropriate that could have been potentially criminal, but they were no longer minors. So that's why I think he, he kind of skated legally, but you know, he, he was, he, you know, he certainly brought shame, shame and discredit upon himself he was in the weak, house sure. and he, he left. You know, I go down Eric Massa. You remember this guy, Congressman oh, yeah. New York, he got in trouble. He had tickle fights with his male staff, yeah. you know, and he, you know, I remember that one. Of course, Anthony Weiner, what else can you say about that? <laughs> and I remember there was a Republican member who uh, resigned, I think in 2011 or 12, because he had a uh, consensual, affair with a district staffer again he did nothing criminal but you know he, he resigned rather than deal with, with that and at that point i don't know if it was against the rules to have a relationship with a member of your own staff but it was consensual there was nothing uh you know it wasn't there wasn't a forced thing uh so that one we had one a guy uh another one another i can think of other republican members too uh trent franks you may remember him you know, the, the, the allegation was, at least it floated in the press, that he had asked his one of his female staff, you know, to be a, a surrogate for him. You know, um, so you know, kind of an odd request, uh, but there might have been, you know, and it sounded like it was, you know, surrogacy, you know, minus the science, minus the minus the in vitro, you know, just the old fashioned way is what it sounded like. Uh, and, uh, but he resigned before we ever got down to the investigation. And there, there's that one. But I mean, I could go down a long list. Uh, Katie Hill, the congresswoman from California last year, you may remember she resigned, or you know, maybe it's two years ago now. She she resigned because of, um, you know, she her, she was kind of, in some respects, a victim of revenge porn by her. Oh, yes. By her, uh, I guess, her estranged husband. Yep. Yep, released some uh, photos of her, you know, and she apparently acknowledged an affair with a woman campaign staffer. And there was some question whether or not she ever had an affair.
pair with a, uh, a, a other staff. I don't I don't know. I, it's again, she yeah. resigned yeah. before you, you know you could ever get down to the, the bottom of. It, but she nevertheless left, uh, and uh, and so and she acknowledged some you know uh, publicly I think some uh, you know inappropriate uh, behavior. But but she was also a, a certain to, to a certain extent a victim. Now here are people who are smart enough, bright enough to get elected to Congress. How do they make these stupid mistakes? Mistakes they know if they're found, they're done. How how does this happen? Well, I think people get comfortable, and and I'll tell you what. You know, here's my other dirty little here's my other little secret. You know, as we're watching, uh, you know, like uh, you know things like in New York, for example, with Governor Cuomo, you see he's under a great deal of pressure. Hey because of alleged incidents of sexual um, uh, harassment. Um, what, I, what I found in Washington was that the members who ended up getting in trouble often had a hostile or, uh, or abusive work environments. Hmm. And I'm not saying this is sexual harassment. I'm just saying that they were very difficult people to work for. That is, hmm. they were not very nice, okay? Hmm. And I always say, you know, if you're a member of Congress and if you're not gonna be careful, you should at least be nice, because if you're not very nice, the people who will bite you in the end will be those staffers that you mistreated, and they will complain. And uh, I dealt with a case of a representative named Karen Richardson in California, and I, I ran the investigation on her. She was a Democrat from California, and she, she had a parade full of staffers, current and former, come into the committee and complain about all the things she was doing to them that were violations of House rules, in terms of making them work on campaigns and uh, and other things that she had done, and and we reprimanded her, and she's no longer a member of Congress. Uh, she lost in her primary, uh, and and so we've had these kinds of issues. But usually, it's a staffer who will complain. And also in the House, unlike the Senate, we have an outside entity called the Office of Congressional Ethics (OCE), and they can receive complaints from the public, and then the OCE can review those complaints and refer them to the ethics committee with one of two recommendations, either recommendation for further review or a recommendation to dismiss. And, but if they send it over to the committee for further review, you know, we, we, will, we will take it up and we can either, you know, we, can, we will investigate it and we can either sanction or not sanction the individual. And if they send something over to dismiss, we can still investigate it and take action if we feel there was an impropriety, even though they recommended a dismissal. And the OCE has no power to sanction anybody. Only the ethics committee does. So that's the other thing that we deal with. So people will get, and that's what I'm saying. I'm sure, sure there are a number of people from Insurrection Day who have had complaints filed with the OCE mm -hmm. that the ethics committee would be compelled to take up. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and by the way, I can literally go down a long list of members who were forced out though. Yeah. Uh, for one reason or another, uh, some, mm -hmm. some friends. And they're Achaka Fatah, Philadelphia. Yes. Remember, yeah. uh, he was convicted and, you know, he wanted to stick around a few, uh, he wanted to stick around, I think, a few months after the conviction. And usually, uh, but that wasn't going to work out. I mean, he'd been convicted and, and basically, you know, uh, th these members still serve while under indictment. And it wasn't just uh, Shaka Fatah. You may remember Chris Collins of New York, Republican, right. Duncan Hunter of California, Republican. They were mm -hmm. both also under indictment while in Congress. So, you know, we do entitle people. They say that they didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, they're entitled to the presumption yeah. of innocence. Yeah. Um, and but once convicted, right. well then or, or they plead, well then guess what? Um, they're, they're, then that's the guilt has been established, right? And that means that the committee has to take it up, and that leads to another question. I think you're probably going to ask me, Jerry, you know, how do you deal with those criminal cases? 
or right, that's exactly right. Yeah, we had the Bill Jefferson case. You remember that? Okay. Probably in Congress. So frozen uh, assets. Yeah, I was Hard working cash. Yes, I was working for the Baton Rouge Advocate. I covered his trial, and it was interesting that you said people get comfortable because I think that's what happened to him. Now here's a guy. He's one of 11 kids in one of the poorest, grew up one of the poorest counties in New Orleans, goes to Harvard, wins the first uh, black member of Congress from Louisiana since reconstruction, gets on the Ways and Means Committee, which you know is a powerful committee, and then is uh, rung up for uh, and indicted for telling people, hey, if you give me money, I can get you business deals in Africa. And you were talking about the cold cash. So they gave him the money. Uh, the FBI recorded it. They went to, it was 100000 They go to his house the next day and they can't find the money. And they're trying to figure out what could a guy do with 100000 dollars in 12 hours and there was an agent in the kitchen and she just on a hunch opened the freezer and all the boca boxes their boca burger boxes were all filled with uh 50 she was boxes. hungry for a burger <laughs> it was and look what you found <laughs> yes but now there's a case and you he was never he was he was indicted but he wasn't convicted what is what happens when someone well, is indicted well like again you know he duncan hunter chaka fatah chris collins bill jefferson they all served while under indictment. Yeah. But the moment they either, I don't remember which ones pled or were convicted in court. But once that happened, they were out of Congress pretty damn fast. Right. And in the case of Chaka Fatah, he wanted to stick around a couple months longer. And then, you know, I, I think Boehner was the speaker at the time. I was chairman of the ethics committee, but I knew, you know, that this guy wasn't going to last much longer because we would have taken up the matter and we probably would have voted to expel him because mm -hmm. we had an investigative subcommittee established upon his indictment. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, and the Justice Department asked us to defer the investigation to them, which we did. We 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 uh, you know gave them that courtesy. But once he was convicted, then we said, okay, well, guess what? Now we've just uh, resuscitated the uh, uh, the investigation, and we're going to we're, we're preparing to expel him. Uh -huh. uh, and 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 but we knew that or we had hoped that he would have had the good sense to resign before then. And I think Nancy Pelosi uh, persuaded him that this would be in the best interest, not only himself, but the institution. And, and he left, as did Chris Collins, as did right. Hunter, as, as did Bill Jefferson. But they do get to serve while they're indicted. So there isn't a, an automatic half-tested committee hearing because they're indicted. Is that right? No, there's, a, there's no, that the, if you are indicted uh, for anything or charged with anything, I think of a misdemeanor or greater, right. you will in fact be, uh, uh, the, the the committee is compelled to uh, open up an investigation. Yeah, now, again, oftentimes the Justice Department will ask the committee to defer the investigation, but the committee is not under no obligation to do so. Right, right, right. And you mentioned Chaka Fatah. He was uh, he was a he was a representative next to my neighborhood in Philly. And then we had Ozzie Myers. He was just north. And was it didn't Ozzie on his way out of the house say that quote too? Didn't he? I thought he got caught in the FBI sting video. Saying it to one of those FBI agents. Who was yeah, maybe. I thought he said it on the way out, too. He might have said it then, too. I mean, hey, you know what? He popularized the term. I mean, we all know it now. <laughs> he sure did. But just real quick, get back to uh, uh, Green. And you talked about some of those sanctions, the expulsion, the, um, you know, the censure. Is anything she's doing, is that anything that someone could say, yeah, she should be expelled, she should be censured? Is it a thing where, hey, you're not you know, living up to house decorum? You know, I have argued that, you know, I, what she has done, I don't know that it rises to the level of expulsion. I, I really don't. And I think in many respects, it, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be prudent to expel her. Look, her constituents elected her right. knowing that she made these statements. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, they 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 elected her. They know what they elected. So or they should know what they elected. And so it's I think it's really on the voters right now. I mean, she hasn't committed any crimes and I'm aware of. Right. She's not accused of committing any crimes, but she has obviously behaved in ways that are, you know, really, again, bringing discredit upon the House. So so I but I do think they can pressure her. And there was a time when a lot of members did feel shame. You know, I, I went through a whole list of members who resigned for non-criminal acts. Sure. Sure. But they got to the point where they realized that they were bringing shame and discredit not only upon themselves, but upon their families, upon their constituents. And sure. it was in everybody's interest that they leave. Sure. Now she doesn't feel that kind of shame, or maybe a Matt Gates. You know, I always thought a guy like Matt Gates, he's he's going to resign. He just doesn't know it yet. I mean, he just. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know how. You, and, again, and to be fair to him, and to be fair to him, yeah, you know, he's you know they, they, he hasn't been charged. You know, everybody's entitled to the presumption of innocence, even right. people who may not be particularly likable. Uh, right. They're they're entitled to that presumption, as is the case with. Uh, 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 with Green and, uh, and certainly Gates with his more serious crimes that are he's accused of. Right. And so, I was going to bring him up because yeah. he is right now under the hot white light in Congress. He has been uh, accused and there's been reported that there's a Department of Justice investigation for uh, trafficking. He had a relationship allegedly with a 17 year old girl who he also, um, you know, paid for her travel and he's denied it. He said they're in false allegations. All of his supporters, all of the Trump supporters are saying they're uh, drummed up charges because he is a supporter of Trump. But like from this point on, would the ethics committee get involved or they got to stand back and wait for the Justice Department to do whatever they're going to do? Uh, Ted Deutsch is the chairman of the ethics committee. He's uh, originally from the Lehigh Valley, by the way, but he represents uh, the Boca Raton, Boca Raton area, Florida. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I would suspect, and I can't speak for him at the committee. He's not, you know, he's right. not going to say, uh, I suspect that they've probably deferred the more serious criminal aspects of their investigation uh, uh, to the Justice Department. Um, and the reason they do that is because you don't want, you know, if, if the ethics committee is asking certain questions that the Justice Department tends to ask, you, you know, you might be tipping them off. There's the reasons why you don't want two sets of investigations going on. Uh, and, and, and understandably, so I do think that, you know, I'm sure he, it's based on all those public reports that he is being investigated by the Justice Department and that, uh, and I'm sure the committee is, uh, is uh, ready to pounce. Yes. Um, you know, um, you know, should that whenever they get a, a green light. Uh, so I think he's got very serious problems. And again, I'm not trying to make light of any of this, but again, usually members will, who will feel some sense of shame Mm-hmm. An embarrassment. And that's what's different now. I mean, now you have you know, Green and Gates, and they're monetizing their notoriety. They do. Their supporters love it. They, they, love monet- it. they monetize it. Say, I am a victim. You're out to get me, the elites or whatever. Whoever, they're all trying to take me down, and you know, I'm fighting for you. And They went on tour together at one point. Yeah, they were I mean, and, and what's sad about it is that uh, these, and, and this is where I think the leadership should come in, because I remember you know, John Boehner, when he was speaker, and even Paul Ryan. Right. I mean, if a member got in trouble, I mean, Ryan would summon them, summon that individual to the office and the Republicans and say, you know, hey, are these allegations true? And if they said and they if they said they're true, we so I see that letter on the desk. That's your resignation letter. Why don't you sign it now? You know, and others would deny it. And then, then, okay, so they let them go. But then, you know, members would lie to them. But Paul Ryan did the same thing. Pelosi, too. She, you know, she she forced some resignations uh, for non-criminal matters. And I mentioned um, Eric Massa and uh, Anthony Weiner. Wiener later was convicted, but he wasn't, well, when he was in the House, he was not at that point under a criminal investigation, as far as I knew. Yeah. Uh, and so, 
Um, so long story short is that's how things were handled, you know, and you know, nowadays, I mean, like, I, like I said, you ordinarily, you know, McCarthy would call those members in, you know, Gates and Green and say, Hey, you know, you, you're going to, we're going to take you off committees. You know, you're going to have the hour, you know, you got to, you, you ought to think about resigning. I mean, that's what you should do. That's how you handle these things. Yeah. And that's what I would do. Uh, yeah. um, and, it's not, um, these aren't fun conversations to have, by the way. But I notice that most members do. Members of Congress are decent, honorable people and staff. They're trying to abide by the rules, and you know, and, and most of the times, if there are violations of rules, sometimes they're inadvertent. Sometimes they're they're not always that intentional, um, and they can easily get tripped up. But the rules are complicated, and every once in a while, you get tripped up. But for the most part, members are trying to behave well. What changes do you think needs to be made? What could be done to improve House ethics? Probably the most important thing was continue to train members that the staff take it seriously and the members take it seriously. And I think most do. And I'll tell you, compared to like, you know, the state capitals and local governments, I, I would say Congress is a lot cleaner. Yeah. There are rules. Uh, they can be enforced and, and they can get very expensive for members, you know, having to defend themselves in these cases. Very expensive. Yes. I remember the Abramoff case. That was yeah, it, these These cost a lot of money. So, it's in their interest to comply. They don't want to get tied up in these types of situations. It is no fun for them. Yeah, before you go, tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the Aspen Institute. I run the congressional program. Uh, it's been a program that's been around for over 30 years, about 35 years, roughly. Uh, and we essentially, you know, we, we try to um, provide thoughtful analysis and educational opportunities for members of Congress on the big issues of the day. We bring in leading scholars and experts. Our program is funded ex exclusively by foundations. Uh, and, you know, we don't, we don't advocate any particular policy, but we try to bring in experts and scholars to talk to the members and, and you let the members make their own determinations about what policy should be. And so that's kind of how it operates. And we've had many out of those conferences. We've had, you know, many, uh, several occasions where, you know, policy was enacted because of members being together, talking about these issues in depth, and then they, they turn around and they put together real, real proposals. Well, that's excellent. You still get to keep your hand in Congress, which is yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for joining us. We really Thanks, appreciate Jerry. the insight. Great stuff. And go Nittany Lions. Amen. All righty. <laughs> Thanks. Take care, Jerry. See you now. We want to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugan, and of course, our technical producer, Brad Maybe the Wizard of Pods, our announcer, Dave, and our contributing voice talent, John, the one-take Terzis, uh, the voice over Tampa Bay. We will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.